I invite you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5. Galatians 5, we're going to read the verses 6 through 16 through 26 together. Galatians 5, starting at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And our text this morning is verses 19 through 21. I'll read that one more time. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, some time ago I was told a story about an old farmer who was driving along a gravel road with his son. And the son and the father got into a heated argument. Finally, the son pulled over and he said to his dad, get out. And he drove off and made his dad walk the rest of the way home. The next morning, the old farmer drove into town to see the lawyer. And he had his son's name removed from the inheritance. It's a sad story. Not just because the son was removed from the inheritance, but because of the evident bitterness that existed between the father and his son. How much 
Do you need to hate your father to make him walk? An old man, make him walk the whole way home in the countryside. And how much do you have to hate your son that you want to take revenge from the grave, from beyond the grave? It makes you wonder what sort of family history led to this situation. And it makes you realize how deeply sin can be rooted in the human heart. Maybe you've never experienced a situation quite this drastic in your own life or your own family, but maybe you have your own family problems to sort out. And you just can't seem to get to the end of it. Or maybe you don't have these kinds of problems. Maybe everyone in your family gets along. But it's a a superficial piece. The family members don't really love each other. They live up to their obligations. They're faithful in carrying out their duties. But there's no real love. So your family background can make a big difference in how you read the Bible. Take a text like the one that we read today, for instance. The Apostle Paul gives a list of 15 sins, and he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Maybe you looked at that list and you recognized some of your own behavior. You're angry at your family members. Maybe you're even angry at God. Maybe you wonder sometimes, you struggle with your faith life, and you wonder sometimes if you will inherit the kingdom of God yourself. Or maybe you look at this list with a sense of pride because you know that you've never done any of these things. Both responses are wrong because both focus on yourself. The point is not, the point of this text is not just to tell us what to do. It's telling us that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is true. But then how do you inherit the kingdom of God? Not by avoiding the things in this list, but by clinging to the work of Christ. So that's also our approach this morning as we consider this text together. Turn from the works of the flesh and cling to the work of Christ. Why? First, because he inherited the kingdom for us. And second, because he shares the kingdom with us. So, If you want to understand this text, you need to look at the last verse first. At the end of this text, in verse 21, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that word inherit is your key to understanding this whole passage. It suggests, this word suggests that it is possible at least for some people to inherit the kingdom of God. And when you start to consider that more closely, you realize you cannot actually take that for granted at all. It is not a given that we, or anyone for that matter, should be an heir. The Bible teaches that all things belong to God because God is the creator. In six days, God created the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. God gave mankind dominion over all things Psalm 8 verse 6 says that you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That was our original setting. We were heirs of the world. Adam and Eve as our representatives were the rightful heirs. 
but they turned away from God. They were sent out of his presence in the garden. They were disinherited, so to speak. And through our sins, we confirm the righteousness of that verdict every day. So when you look at this verse, you need to understand that God does not owe an inheritance to anyone. The very fact that an inheritance is possible is grace. So even when you look at the starkness of that phrase, will not inherit the kingdom of God, that word inherit in the middle has the gospel wrapped up in it. God does not owe an inheritance to anyone, but he promised one anyway. You find this inheritance language throughout the Old Testament. It first becomes prominent in the promises that God made to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 12. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, as we've seen before, God promises him land and descendants. Why is that promise important? Because ultimately it was never just about the land. It was about what the land represents. The land of Israel at that time was the only place on the face of the whole earth where you could go and encounter God. So then to have a share in the promised land is to have a share in the presence of God himself. And that, that connection was represented by the Levites who mediated between the people and God and who did not have any land of their own. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, They, the Levites, shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. But the Re Levites represented the rest of God's people before him. And so this promise applied to all of God's people. And that's why you find it reflected in Psalm 16, which we sang together. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And it's crystal clear. He ties the land and God's presence together in this psalm. And he says, this is what you have given to me. Sadly, the people of God squandered their inheritance. Abram's descendants did end up inheriting the land. And God promised to be with them. He called them to obedience, and they were obedient for the first generation. But then, as Judges chapter 2 puts it, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, they practiced the works of the flesh, as our passage would put it. God warned them through his prophets over and over He said through the prophet Jeremiah, for example, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. So it was only a matter of time before the people were conquered and deported. In Psalm 79 verse 1, the psalmist laments, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. And here again, the land and God's temple, his presence is tied together. 
So what's so remarkable in all of this is God's absolute and utter determination to restore his people to their inheritance. The people were exiled for a time, but the land was still there for them, waiting for them to come back. God was absolutely determined to give his people their inheritance. This is for people who squandered it over and over and over. Even after the exile, the Lord still says through the prophet Ezekiel, my dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. How is it possible that God continues to do this, that he continues to promise an inheritance to people who will never earn it on their own, who have shown endless times that they are not worthy? Because ultimately he didn't promise it just to them. He promised it to Jesus Christ. Remember in Galatians 3 verse 16, we read this, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and Paul says it doesn't say offsprings, referring to many, but, and to your offspring, referring to one who is the Christ. So these inheritance promises God made ultimately to Christ, he is the true heir. The fact that Christ is the heir becomes apparent, especially in the parable of the vineyard. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 21. The story of a master who plants a vineyard and puts tenants in it. And then he sends servants to collect his share of the fruit. And the tenants harm and even kill his servants. And then starting at verse 37 of Matthew 21, it says, Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So this parable is a parable of the relationship between God and his people. And the son who was killed is Jesus, of course. And it says very clearly in the parable that he is the heir. It fits perfectly with what Paul wrote. Jesus is the true heir. Jesus is God and man in one. As the catechism puts it, Jesus is the eternal, natural son of God. He alone lived a life that is truly pleasing to God. And therefore, he alone is worthy on his own merit to be God's heir. And he didn't just do this for God's people. He didn't just do this for us. He did this for God. Israel itself was described as God's inheritance in many places in the Old Testament. I read in Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, it says that the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. And there are numerous examples. If you look up the word heritage or inheritance in your concordance, there are numerous examples in the Old Testament of this sort of language. So Christ inherited the kingdom for us, but ultimately, it's not just about us. It's about God. It is about his intense desire to have his people dwell with him again. In fact, God has much greater plans in store for his people. In the Old Testament, the inheritance was just the promised land, but the promised land was not that big. And some of you have um, a Bible with a map in the back. Maybe some of you have maps of Israel in the, in the back of your Bible. And if you open that up and if you have a look at the map and if you look at the scale on the map, you will see that the promised land was not actually that big. It is not that big. A WA alone already is much bigger. 
So the inheritance cannot be limited just to this little strip of land called Israel. And in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus connected this idea of inheritance together with the whole earth. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is a fruit of the Spirit, also known as gentleness. So one day the meek, that is God's people, will inherit the whole earth. You see, it was never the intention that God's reign would be limited to just one place. It is God's intention that his rule will be restored over all things. And he's doing that through Christ. Christ alone is worthy to be the heir. Christ inherited the kingdom for us, and his ascension to heaven proves it. We celebrated Ascension Day not that long ago. The ascension is Christ entering into his inheritance entering into the presence of God on his own merits. But as the heir, he shares the inheritance with us. So before his ascension, he said to his people, and therefore by extension also to us, collectively as his people, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So God promises to be with his people forever. And he connects these ideas. He says, all things have been given to me. I will be with you forever. That's the inheritance. So now, back to our text. When we consider our text from the angle of this one word, inheritance, we see this is not just a list of behaviors to avoid if you want to be right with God. We should not read this list from from the perspective of what we should do, but from the perspective of what Christ has done. When you focus purely on your own behavior, you're actually dishonoring Christ. And that is not just if you focus on the um, sins that you've committed exclusively, but even if you focus on the the so-called good works. If that's all you're thinking about, you're recognizing him as your lawgiver, but not as your savior. That does not honor him. We are to turn from the works of the flesh and cling to the work of Christ, not just because he inherited the kingdom for us, but also because he shares the kingdom with us, which was the second thing that we are looking at. You see, the promise of the inheritance is not just restricted to Abraham. It is not just restricted to his descendants. It applies to all of God's people who believe. And this has been made very clear to us in Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 3, verse 7 through 9, for example, he writes, Know them that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this promised inheritance is for all who believe, regardless of their background. That's the consistent teaching of Scripture. For example, in Ephesians 3, verse 6, we read that the Gentiles, that's us, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In Colossians 1 verse 12, Paul writes to the Colossians that he gives thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In Hebrews 9 verse 15, we read that Christ 
is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So this applies to us. And when we are joined to Christ in faith, we acknowledge him as our Lord. And then that faith is expressed in turning away from these works of the flesh that we find in our text. And then, and only then, when you understand that, can you turn to this list of the works of the flesh. So let's do that together. Let's turn to this list. We're going to go through each word and uh, comment on it briefly and then see how it ties together. So when you look at this list, starting in verse 19 to 21, when you look at it closely, you can see that it divides into four categories. Um, Sexuality, religion, social interaction, and alcohol. And so these four categories touch on uh, pretty much all of our day-to-day life. So the first category of sexuality includes the first three words, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Sexual immorality is, uh, is porneia in Greek. It's related to our English word pornography. There are, there are different words for sexual transgression in the Greek language. For example, we, we have separate words for things like adultery and so on. Um, uh, multiple words describing different aspects of homosexuality as well. But then you have sexual immorality, which is a catch-all term to, uh, to basically cover the whole range of illegitimate sexual activity. Anything that doesn't specifically fall into these other words would be captured in this word sexual immorality. Then there's impurity. Interesting word. Actually, it has uh, roots in the Old Testament. Um, um, ceremonial impurity is what it originally meant, and here it refers to immorality in general um, and uh, the separation that you get from God as a result of that. Moral corruption, let's say, is impurity. Sensuality. Is a, is a word that has connotations of shamelessness. Some translations render it as debauchery. And this um, sensuality, this debauchery, is basically engaging in all sorts of immoral behavior without having any shame. So this debauchery has no, no limits. It doesn't care what other people think. There's no shame, no boundaries. Then you get to the second category of words, which has to do with unlawful religious activity. Only two words in that category. The first one's idolatry. We know what that is. Then you get sorcery. Now, this word translated as sorcery is interesting. Um, Greek is uh, pharmakeia. We get our word pharmacy from that. So this has to do with drugs. So uh, specifically drugs that were used um, in um, poisoning, which was considered as a, as a subcategory of this sort of magic. It was poisoning, uh, magic spells, that kind of thing. And interestingly, also abortion. Um, the, the act of abortion, to give a, a drug that causes an abortion, is categorized under this heading of sorcery in the New Testament. That's interesting, isn't it? We wouldn't normally think of it that way, but that is what, what it says here. A third category is... Um, the third category of works of the flesh has to do with social interaction. This is probably the longest one. And the first one here is enmity. 
Enmity is interesting because it pertains not just to deeds, but also to thoughts, doesn't it? It's not just that you have um, um, hostile acts towards other people, but enmity is also an attitude. So this word excludes even having thoughts of enmity towards others. Strife is arguing about all sorts of stuff. Jealousy. Jealousy is basically ingratitude. Uh, instead of accepting all that we have from God, we, we, we are jealous of what other people have. And we reject the thing that God has allotted to us in this life. And then it's followed by fits of anger. You get envy, drunk, you get um, jealousy, then fits of anger. Now, uh, fits of anger we often excuse on the basis of personality. We might say things like, well, you know, uh, for that family, it runs in the family. He has a short fuse, it's true, but it runs in the family. But Scripture doesn't let us do that. It makes no exceptions for people that, that get a pass for this sort of behavior. Anytime that you raise your voice in anger against other people, whether they be family or not, you are having a fit of anger. And that's sin. It's not normal. It's not acceptable behavior to, to lose control in this way. And the fact that it's included in this list shows us, it teaches us that God will not bless us in our family life, in our personal life, if we raise our voices against each other in anger. The next word is rivalries. Fits of anger and then rivalries. Rivalries refers to selfish ambition. It means doing things just for the sake of what's in it for me. Then there's dissensions and divisions. That is interesting as well. These words are similar. They have to do with the attitude and the action of picking sides in church. And that certainly happens in our circles as well from time to time. You get an issue that polarizes people and then we all, everybody pegs each other based on where they stand on this particular issue. And it doesn't even matter what the issue is. It doesn't matter what the issue is. The the point here is the behavior that it causes. Then there's envy, self-explanatory. Some manuscripts add murder here. Um, if you're following along in the NKJV, then it should have murder there as well. Um, it's not in all manuscripts. But um, it's... It's in some of them, and it would certainly be the final outcome of these vices if they were left unchecked. And now we get to the last category, sins of alcohol. Orgies, drunkenness, and orgies. Drunkenness and orgies. What's an orgy? It's a wild party. That's all it is. You get a wild party, and then people commit sexual sin. There are certain kinds of people who like to throw wild parties that involve lots and lots of drinking, and sometimes stuff happens around a corner or behind a shed that nobody wants to talk about afterwards. Drunkenness makes you lose self-control. That's why it goes together with orgies. And the list is not exhaustive. Paul adds to that in things like these. There's no limit to the works of the flesh. But there's one thing you can be absolutely sure of. Those who do such things, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why not? 
because this behavior ultimately shows a lack of conversion. And this is important to remember, especially for our youth, because it's hard sometimes being young, isn't it? You're trying to find a, a group of friends to spend time with. Sometimes you might find other youth who engage in the works of the flesh. Sometimes it even happens that there are adults who know about that, and they don't intervene, they don't really speak up against it, because they say, well, you know, it's just a phase. It's just a phase. But our text doesn't allow you to draw that conclusion. If you have youth, or anyone for that matter, um, who consistently engage in the works of the flesh, it's not the case that they are otherwise good Christian people who happen to be going through a phase. The problem is that they're unconverted. And even if they straighten out later on, they might still be unconverted. They've just gotten better at hiding it. That makes it much worse. It is true that we don't look to our works for assurance of salvation, but the works of the flesh do indicate whether or not someone is saved. To those people who, who regularly engage in the works of the flesh, God says they will not inherit his kingdom. Why should they? Why should they? It's his kingdom to dispose of as he wills. Why should he share it with people who do not acknowledge his rule? Why should he grant it to people who do not treasure his covenant? It doesn't even make sense from their perspective. Think about what the kingdom of God is. What is the kingdom of God? The catechism explains it, right? Lord's Day 48, so rule us by your word and spirit. So the kingdom of God is to be in his presence, ruled by him forever. That's what heaven is. And if you don't want to be ruled by God here on earth, why would you want to spend eternity like that? It makes no sense even from the perspective of the person who, who does these things. So why, why live a double life? It makes no sense at all. Why would someone who rejects the rule of Christ now want to be placed under that rule later? And if, if we're doing this, who are we trying to fool? But that is not to say that the way to inherit the kingdom is by avoiding all of these works. Because any works that you do are works of the flesh if they are not motivated by God's spirit. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15. Most of us would be familiar with this one. You know the story. Younger brother collects his inheritance, travels to a distant country, spends his time in the works of the flesh, runs out of money, goes back home. His older brother is angry, and he won't celebrate with him. And the father comes out to plead with the older brother, and the older brother says, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So his life and his relationship with his father was defined not by what he did, but by what he didn't do. But it was still a work of the flesh. It wasn't motivated by love. You can say with certainty that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But you cannot deduce that therefore those who avoid such things will inherit the kingdom of God. Why not? Because an inheritance is not ever something you work for. 
By definition, it's not something you work for. If it was, it wouldn't be an inheritance. It would be wages. Right? So who were the heirs? Those who were part of the family. If a neighborhood kid comes over to play and acts like a model child, you might see a lot of him. If you're a parent and uh, you have this, this child coming to play with your children, you might be impressed. You might think, wow, he's even better behaved than my own kids. But you don't write him into your will, do you? No matter how well behaved he is, the fact that he came over and played with your kids does not mean that he therefore gets written into your will. You cannot inherit by merit. You think about that, kids. I'm thinking here of the really young brothers and sisters. If you don't follow all of this, just remember this, this phrase. You cannot inherit by merit. It kind of has a ring to it, doesn't it? You cannot inherit by merit. And if you're still not sure what it means, your, your parents will explain it. You cannot inherit by merit. You can only be an heir if you cling to the work of Christ through faith because he shares the kingdom with us. And only then will the Holy Spirit empower you to turn away from the works of the flesh. But it's not easy, is it? And maybe it makes you wonder, why is it such a struggle to break with the works of the flesh? Maybe you have a besetting sin in your life that you just cannot shake and you are trying to outwit it and every time you still find it back. And you think, why does God free us from the dominion and slavery of sin but not from the flesh and body of sin? Well, maybe he wants to teach us how to fight. That's how it was in the Old Testament. Remember, there were heathen tribes left behind in the promised land as well. In Judges 3, we read that the Lord did this to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. So, The Lord deliberately left heathen tribes behind in his inheritance so that the people would not become complacent. And the same is true for us. When we struggle with the works of the flesh, this is not something that interferes with our faith. You should not primarily look at it in those terms. Uh, it, it can interfere with your faith. But the point is that when you struggle with the works of the flesh and when you push back against them, that, in that moment, that is faith. That's when you are exercising your faith. And that's when you have an opportunity to turn to the Lord for strength and renewed energy to fight. And he will give that to us, which is why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper next week. We need to be constantly sustained by Christ. It is not that he lets us into the covenant by grace and now it's up to us to stay in by our own works. No, it's grace all the way. And so when we fall, we need to simply get up and keep walking. As a form for baptism puts it so beautifully, and if we sometimes through weakness fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy nor continue in sin. For baptism is a seal and trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God. John Calvin said, Paul does not threaten that there shall be excluded from the kingdom of God all who have sinned, but all who remain impenitent. God does not exclude those who have sinned. He excludes those who are 
impenitent. In other words, those who remain in their sin, those who practice, that is, carry out the works of the flesh. So yeah, legalism is easier. If we were to, to simply use this list as a, um, a list of things to avoid, then our hearts would rejoice because it would mean that we could tick off these 15 words and then have fulfilled our religious obligations while we go off and live for ourselves. But that's not how it works. God calls us to something much greater. His kingdom is more than just a list. It is to be under his reign. It is to have communion with him. It is to be filled with the Spirit. It is, in the end, to be happy forever. Amen.